Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome everyone, I'm Emerson Green and I'm joined by Ryan from Relay Theology and I'm also joined by John, counter-apologist who is dishonorably discharged from Relay Theology. Fire me, I quit! (laughs) (laughs) He's not to be confused with yours truly, the host of the Counter-Apologetics podcast, patreon.com slash counter, and um, he's got a separate thing, counter-apologist, I have the counter-apologetics podcast, but at any rate we're all here today to talk about the worst idea that's ever been concocted by human beings. Um, so Ryan and John, how are you guys doing? I'm I'm doing pretty great. I'm doing good. Doing very good. Very happy to be here. Yeah, me too. Cool. So um, this will not just be uh, you know what some people might expect from me, which is just ranting and raving about the appalling immorality of eternal conscious torment. Even though there will definitely be plenty of that, but I just want to hand the reins over to counter apologist. So um, I've got a clip of William Lane Craig here. He says, how do you answer David Bentley Hart's objection that the doctrine of eternal conscious torment is morally unjustifiable? I think that we should not understand hell in terms of punishment for the array of finite sins that we commit in this lifetime. Um, Sins like murder and theft and adultery, even terrorism and mass murder surely merit finite amounts of punishment, not infinite punishment. But I think that the sin of rejecting God is a sort of meta sin of an entirely different order because this sin separates us from God decisively. Uh, And because of the dignity of God's person uh, is a sin of infinite gravity and proportion, and therefore deserves infinite punishment. Well, there you have it. Uh, Makes sense to me. Case closed. Uh, Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) We're all screwed. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. It's amazing how much you can get wrong in one minute of video, but you have to remember Craig is a professional. So (laughs) there's so much, like, so there's a lot to go through. Um, one of my immediate things that popped up to me, um, so if you're not familiar with William Lane Craig, uh, he's famous for defending the Kalam cosmological argument in which he famously argues that a actual infinite is metaphysically impossible. Now, this gets a little weird because he believes that rejecting God is a sin of infinite gravity. Now, the problem here is that because of the distinctions he made with any given finite sin, right? Um, not meriting an infinite amount of punishment. Um, This actually has to be an actual infinite in the sense that Craig wants to avoid in other contexts. Now, I'm not talking about the punishment of hell being infinite because, you know, that Craig would describe that as a potential infinite. It just goes on for infinity um, and never never reaches an actual infinity. Um, So the problem becomes is that to justify a potential infinite of punishment, you have to create create an actual infinite of a sin of, you know, a sin of infinite gravity um, that that would justify it because all the other sins are just finite. 
right? So you've once you've done the act, the act is done, it's over, but it's of infinite gravity, right? So it's, that's an actual infinite. There's no real way around it. Um, now, someone might be tempted to say, like, if you read Craig's published works, he talked when you say, um, when they bring up, hey, you define God in all, in this, as an infinite being, but you say they can't be actual infinites. They'll say, well, in that sense, I'm really just using infinite as a, a, a literary uh, reference to like God being the triomni being, really. Um, in which case, he's equivocating on infinite. You know, if, if, it's, if it just means that we'll sing against the triomni being, triomni being means you're punished for an infinite amount of time. Well, okay, that's just kind of special pleading. I think at that point to say why why going against the triomni being as, as a single finite sin would justify infinite punishment. Um, or he's got to deal with the fact that this becomes an actual infinity, which in other contexts he says is supposed to not be phys metaphysically possible. Um, I think he's wrong, but he does, you know, this is an internal critique of Craig's own views. Um, yeah, and anyone else who like you know says that there can't be actual infinites in the context of the Kalam, but um, Craig's view, as I understand it, is that everlasting torment is proportionate, you know, to the sin of rejecting God because of the uh, dignity of his person. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, this is not like substantially different from what other defenders of eternal conscious torment will say. You know, they'll say that since God was the one wronged and because he's an infinite being so you think you just you know lied to your mom and that's a finite sin um you know which according to craig you know craig agrees you know the finite sins merit finite punishment um but you know other uh, defenders of ect will be like oh well you know you committed this sin against an infinite god so by some weird uh transitive property like this is now an infinite sin even though we're committing a sin against a trinitarian being it's not like our sins become trinitarian in nature it's just this one you know, attribute or property or whatever that somehow like attaches itself to our sins. Um, but anyway, Craig is applying that same sort of reasoning uh, where he, it's just this one sin. So there's, so that's the first problem, I think. Mm -hmm. um, now there's a second problem of, of his issue is and where he, he, I think he's doing quite a bit of misdirection. It's a little bit of sleight of hand. So, so the, the, the objection is that you know, hell is morally unjustifiable. And we're talking about hell as eternal conscious torment, right? And so he starts, you know, sh Craig quickly shifts the justification of like he's talking about finite sins versus sins of infinite gravity. But the strongest form of the objection against hell is that torture is immoral, right? Let alone infinite conscious torture, right? An eternal amount of it, right? So if you are American, like uh, the three of us, we have a constitutional right, which conservative Christians like Craig will argue are rights given to us by God. Um, and it is, we have a right to not be tortured. It is, there was no legal mechanism to be punished no matter what you do. You could be Hitler. We would not have tortured Hitler after the Nuremberg trials if he somehow didn't kill himself. Um, like it, it is wrong. It is morally wrong to just torture end of story, right? It's like God couldn't lie or something like that, or things that God supposedly couldn't do and be a perfectly moral being. So if this is not the case, Craig has to reject the idea. So he has to be able to say, well, then is it morally permissible for me to hold my five-year-old's daughter's hand over an open flame because she lied to me, right? Is that somehow morally justifiable because torture is an appropriate punishment depending on the sin? Like it just doesn't. It's it's just morally nonsensical to me. 
I don't know about you, but um, maybe you've come across this, but I've I've come across it as well, where the typical reply seems to be, oh, well, God's not like actually torturing you. Uh, he's just sort of like, it's torment. It's not torture. Like, so he's just sort of abandoned you to. Uh, distinction without a difference. Right, exactly. So that seems to be, or what I found at least, the typical reply. But yeah, I, I don't, because like you brought up your daughter. It's like, well, if you, whether you like holding your daughter's hand over an open flame or just somehow, you know, she has her hand there, maybe it's stuck or something and you just sit there and watch um, and you allow that to take place. Uh, you're not technically torturing her, right? But you're allowing her to be tormented. And right. yeah, I think like anybody would still realize, yeah, you're a shitty parent, right? <laughs> like that's a horrible thing to do, <laughs> to see that and just abandon your child with her hand stuck over the fire or something like that. So Right. And and the reason is not because the thing she did was a finite sin. You know, that's not the explanation of why that would be a horrible thing to do. Right. It's like, oh well the sin was finite, so that's why it strikes us as so horrible. Like, no, that's not the explanation of why that strikes us as so horrible. But yeah, it I mean, no one thinks that God is like personally torturing people or whatever. But to say that he bears no responsibility for the system that was put in place, like, you know, like I didn't create heaven or hell or the rules by which people are sent there. So, I mean, the word that I've used sometimes it's like slightly more passive is like superintend or facilitate, like God superintends or facilitates the uh, eternal conscious torture of, um, you know, sentient beings. Because, you know, it, they do try to like quibble with words and give him some amount of distance. And it's like, you can have some amount of distance. It doesn't really change anything. Hey, like, I think, I think Ryan's point was a very good one. So like that sort of answers the whole C.S. Lewis, like, oh, the doors to hell are locked from the inside somehow. <laughs> like if my daughter's hand was stuck in an open flame and I just kind of sat there and watched her like, well, you should have learned not to get your hand stuck. Right. Like that. No, you're a bear. They'll take my child away. Um, and I think the the epistemic, the distance is, again, it's a wonderful point. Like uh, the way I like to put it when I've talked about this in the past was that if God knew that giving people free will and creating moral agents or people that were morally free entailed that some would sin and that would suffer eternal conscious torture. The only moral option in that case is to not create. Like if you were an all loving being, you would not create beings that you love that would be tortured forever. Like you just don't do that. Like that's a veto on um, like love would be a veto there. Um, yeah. And plenty of Christians believe that, plenty of people will be saved, you know, and like he, it seems as, I mean, this gets into divine foreknowledge and whatnot, but you know, God didn't have to uh, create people who are going to end up in hell. Um, maybe you're some kind of open theist, you know, so it's worth getting into the weeds there. But, um, you know, I mean, I think David Bentley Hart raised this point as well, where it's like some of these people who really do believe that God was like totally fine with the cost of some people, you know, burning for all of time. Um, I, he was kind of speculating that they have not really grappled with what that says about the character of God, that he, you know, even if he wasn't predestining people in like a Calvinist sense, like the thing that makes predestination so repellent is still a feature of, you know, many other forms of Christianity that don't like explicitly affirm predestination. What, what would you guys think if, because my, my thought is that Craig is going to say, well, look, um, everybody that exists is sort of like intertwined together. Um, and like, so my existence affects, you know, certain people's other, uh, their, how their lives go. And so um, 
you could say, well, why not just not create the people who are going to go to hell? And I imagine Craig saying, well, if you take those people out and he never created them, then the people who were going to go to heaven might not go to heaven, like because maybe somehow my atheism or something or my going to, going to hell was somehow causally connected to another person accepting Christ or something like that. Um, does that make sense? No, yeah, that's his, that's the Molinist. So I, I'm actually working on, I'm trying to work on a big, a big thing on that specific topic. Yeah. Um, but the reason I don't think that works is that, so it's like, it's very weird because that takes a, like Molinism, that, that's part of that view, has a very strangely deterministic, uh, like free, like libertarian free will has a strangely deterministic aspect to it. And that you would always freely choose to like basically reject God. Like this is like the, like a choice that you would have. And so that if you were, you know, in a different, slightly different situation, you would maybe accept God. Um, and the trick there is that there are basically like, if we define, like there has to be like a rigid designator for that, such that where you freely chosen your current sum total of life circumstances to reject God, right? That rigidly designates you as a person, right? But then it is logically possible that there's another version of Ryan that is exactly like you in almost every other choice, except you freely chose to accept God in the end for your, for your thing. And we can even go even further. You could just say, choose just never to sin, like no sin ever. It is a logically possible world for n number of people. Um, and n is any natural number would always freely choose to do the good or always at least freely choose to love God. And so if he says, well, then those other people might not in this, it's like a, a situation, uh, some total of situations in a life to choose to, or reject, to, choo to either choose to love God or choose to reject God. And then you just create the version of them that would just choose to love God in the new set of situations, right? So there's an infinite number of people that God could create. There's no logical contradiction anywhere. And if omnipotence means being able to do anything logically possible, it's a logically possible world. That, that's the thing that I gets me every time is I think the typical response. I don't know if you heard of like where they bring up feasible worlds. Like, yeah, it's logically possible, but it's not a feasible world. Um, like, so like, I think that's kind of planning his thing um, where he can't guarantee that all free persons, I think, uh, would always choose what's right so like yes it's logically possible but uh trans world depravity um guarantees that or maybe almost guarantees that at least someone will go wrong at some point in time and i don't know to me that just feels like a cop-out like like no god god can do anything that's logically possible i mean obviously there's some difficulties with that definition but uh, i don't think they affect this point and i think that just saying it's not feasible seems um, like a really bad reply like to try to get out of it. It's, it, it's not just a cop-out. It, it straight doesn't work because yeah. like Planica defines trans-world depravity such that any in any given possible world, it will always go wrong. Yeah. Well, then there's also this concept. There's, there's always these symmetries in these weird metaphysical arguments and that there's trans-world sanctity so that no matter what, right, they will right. always all choose to love God, right? There's no way, like, there's no justification for transworld depravity over transworld sanctity without appealing to, well, in the world we see we see sin, right? We're talking about what's feasible, and I think what's feasible is like talking about what's metaphysically possible. So when Craig says inf actual infinites are metaphysically impossible, it's just on Craig's metaphysical assumptions, it can't happen, right? And that's it. 
Like there's no, you can't disprove it, but I just kind of assume that it's, it can't work. Is really, that's all that's doing. I am curious, what do you think Craig would say if we pointed this out to him? Like, you know, what you're saying about guilt, doesn't that kind of sound like you're talking about an actual infinite of guilt? And like, that's what justifies the proportionality of, you know, it, it, everlasting torment. Um, it seems like that is what he's saying. I don't think we're being like, um, you know, dishonest or kind of like, like, I, I really don't think this is... Um, like kind of sneaky on our part or we're like trying to play gotcha or something it's like no you said there are no actual infinites and then you're trying to justify eternal conscious torment and you recognize like how nonsensical it is to say that there's infinite punishment for finite sins you know you acknowledge that unlike a lot of your you know evangelical counterparts but then there seems to be this tension here you know and i actually don't get what his what his view would be or how he would uh respond like i actually don't know what he would say yeah, I agree, because if he's going to hold to, like, the proportionality principle, I don't think he could get away with, like, some kind of weird metaphorical usage of infinity, but then say, because infinite punishment, well, like, John, you said that would be like a... Um, potential infinite. Yeah, potential infinite. Thank you. But that's still, like, an infinite in a very quantitative sense. You know, it's like you are there forever, so infinite time, or, you know, it's going to go on forever and ever and never end. And so if you're going to then leverage the proportionality principle, you you've got to have something that connects those two. So it seems like he has to use infinity on the other side of that with the guilt in some kind of a reasonably similar sense uh, in order to make that work. Yeah, he could just, I, I don't know, like it gets very strange because the only, the other way I've seen uh, infernalists, and that's the people who hold to eternal conscious torture, um, they, they try to justify it as like, well, by rejecting god and being in hell you're continually sinning which is just earning you infinite more punishment um but um craig is a doxastic voluntarist in that you could choose your beliefs like he's on record on uh capturing christianity's channel saying he believes this which so is bizarre very very minority view in philosophy generally i think even amongst um christian philosophers that would be a minority view um that said if he grants that then how does he know that nobody, like after my trillionth year in, in hell, I don't be like, I'm going to choose to believe in loving God. <laughs> like, how do you, like, there's got to be a way out, but there is no way out. Like he says, it separates us from God permanently. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I don't quite understand the logistics of what's going on. Like, I, it almost sounds like he's imagining like after death, there's like this final revelation. And then you make your choice that determines where you go. But I just want to hear more about like, his, his view like you know because there's so much to unpack about like rejecting god and what that means and like um the fact that it's it's worse than like the holocaust you know like this act of like rejecting god is like worse than the you know genocide apparently like that's a finite sin that's not why you're in hell hitler like you're in hell adolf because you rejected god not because of the holocaust yeah the other thing i'm interested in knowing is because on the one hand he makes it sound like never-ending hell is a punishment for rejecting him but then he says that our rejection of him decisively separates us from him. so it almost sounds like our act is the thing that's doing the work it's not a punishment it's like somehow i don't know cutting us off from god in some sense so i don't know like which direction it's going if that makes sense uh is it a punishment or is it somehow just you know when you say i don't want to be with you it then okay then curtains down game over yeah, yeah 
Yeah, because then it gets into issues of like postmortem post postmortem salvation, and like, what if you were given infinite chances? Would you would you ever, you know, be willing to pursue the good or like have a relationship with this being of perfect love and have an eternity of bliss instead of um, an eternity of torment? Like, or would you just continue? Are the doors locked from the inside, and you're just going to choose torment over and over again for all of time? Um, yeah. if, it seems like if God wills all to be saved, then. Um, you know, like it wouldn't just be like we have this brief window on earth and then that's it. And then you're just stuck wherever you are, even if you want to change your mind or something. But, um, you know, C.S. Lewis seemed to believe in like postmortem salvation. He, I don't think he, it's kind of unclear. It sounded like, it sounded like he thought you would have the chance, but like not many people, if anyone would actually take it, you know, the doors are blocked from the inside. That just don't understand. So first off, like, like when Craig talks about his views of the, you know, eschatology, like the afterlife, he, he talks about how we, we've chosen to reject God and that I don't understand. So he, but he also talks about how this life is like a veil of uh, ignorance because he's like, well, when you're in heaven, like, like, what, like, do I lose my free will? Like I can't sin anymore. And he's like, ah, well, God's the um, beatific vision of God is so amazing. It's like a, like a powerful electromagnet and you're, uh, we are just iron filings, and as soon as we get it, we're just a, we're just drawn to it, and we just can't help it. We just cannot sin because it's just impossible for us. And so the idea is like, well, where's the informed consent? Like when I make choices, like there are certain situations on like contracts. Like if I signed a contract, but it was like misrepresented to me in some way, you can get out of that because I did not have informed consent. This is why like sexual relations with a minor is illegal because they do not understand the ramifications of what they're supposedly acquiescing to, right? And so not understanding that like, oh, you're going to go into infinite torture versus infinite love. I and mean, hey, what is this infinite love like? What is this infinite torture like? Give me like a, give me, give me a five seconds of the torture of hell and then give me five seconds of the bliss and then I'll tell you, right? But that's off limits. Like, like I can't, I don't get to pick <laughs> after the fact once I know fully what it is. It just doesn't make sense. And yeah. who would choose that? No, that actually factors a lot into David Bentley Hart's arguments against eternal conscious torment, which, by the way, was the original question, which, like, you know, the questioner was like, you know, how do you respond to David Bentley Hart's case against eternal conscious torment, his, like, moral case or whatever? And, um, I mean, spoiler alert, Craig did not really address his case. You know, like, what he said was just kind of like a statement of something that Craig, or I mean, that Hart addresses in That All Shall Be Saved, like, a few different places. And, Craig just doesn't even engage with it, but I it, I thought it would be worth going through a snapshot of Hart's argument, um, which is kind of hard to do because that all shall be saved is not like a work of analytic philosophy, um, and you kind of have to read the whole chapter or meditation or whatever to uh, get the full effect. Um, but yeah, it's really you know it's worth reading. Um, but I know that not everyone is going to uh, going to read it, so I thought it'd be worth you know at least trying to outline what the argument is that Craig is responding to, or at least what's most relevant to what Craig is saying. So first off, David Bentley Hart is extremely based and agrees with me that justice and eternal conscious torment is, it's, those things are just logically incompatible. You're talking about punishment that is literally like infinitely disproportionate to um, the things that were committed. Um, and he doesn't seem to think that rejecting God is some kind of sin of infinite gravity, you know, um, because of the dignity of God's person. But he thinks that, you know, the only reason anyone even entertains this is because of tradition and emotional pressure, like ex exerted from uh, 
you know, like, oh, if you're a real Christian, you'll believe this, you know, that sort of thing, or you'll at least take it very seriously. It's definitely not the most ridiculous and morally appalling idea that anyone's ever conceived of. Um, but the thing is, Craig does grant, you know, like a pretty crucial part, like we talked about, that your sins are finite. They don't warrant infinite torture or infinite torment, um, which apparently those are not synonyms. So big apology to all the Christians listening to this. Um, torment and torture, different things. So, um, yeah, Craig grants this, but he says there's this one special sin, you know, that's a uh, sin of a different order, and it makes your guilt in uh, actual infinite, um, which I thought was metaphysically impossible, but you've got this actual infinite of guilt. So, you know, a lot of Hart's argument, I guess, and, you know, the thing that this is all going to turn on is the, sort of the notion of guilt. Guilt, according to Hart and every other sane person, like, you have to account for the transgression and the transgressor. So, it's not just the act of rejecting God, you know, if we're just going to grant that that's like this like terrible, terrible thing, worse than any finite sin. It's not just the, you know, wickedness of that act. It's also the intentions of the person who rejects God, the knowledge of the person who rejects God, their capacities, their powers. If you're going to be guilty, you have to take into account these two things, like the the transgression and the transgressor. Like those two things help determine guilt. You can't just ignore one. You know, you can't just say, oh, it's the thought that counts. It doesn't matter what actually happened. And conversely, you can't say, oh, it only matters what you did. It doesn't matter what you thought you were doing or what you intended to do or um, your knowledge or powers or capacities or what have you. So obviously, like you're, you're going to have to take those two things into account to have like an intelligible notion of guilt, right? Like in any other context, this would be completely obvious. I think that generally goes by what is it is it like called like the status principle or something because i've had a lot of people say similar things like or christians i mean when they're um, trying to justify eternal conscious torment mm -hmm. which sounds like what he's kind of speaking against is that and the typical example is always like oh well if you um it's either something like oh if you lie to like your um I don't know, spouse, that's bad. If you lie to like a cop, that's worse. If you lie to like the president, then that's like really bad or something. Or, mm -hmm. or like, or, or sometimes it's in the context of punching somebody. Like you punch a homeless person. Oh, that's not good, but you know, you're not like going to be thrown in prison for like uh, years. But if you punch a cop, you know, okay, now you're going to prison for sure for at least a while. If you punch the president, now you're definitely right. Bigger mm -hmm. trouble. And th those seem like to be uh, common examples but they they seem to depend well one i think there's problems with them period uh, there's a lot of things to say about them but one of the uh, underlying assumptions or or one of the things that's always relied on is that you're harming um the individual in some way and obviously god can't be harmed at all right so god you know we're, we're like nothing compared to god so we can't like harm him um, now he does talk about like his dignity. So like maybe God is just really like offended uh, or something. <laughs> I don't know what it means. I've honestly thought about it, but like, I mean, and this is not, I'm not trying to like play dumb in this context. Like sometimes people will yeah. Um, like in, like I was writing about the death penalty today and I'm like very against the death penalty, but um, some of the arguments against it are not very good. And they use similar kind of language like, Oh, the dignity of a person that's, it's just such that you could never do this. And I'm like, don't know what that means. <laughs> it's, it's not convincing to me at all. Um, but yeah, I think there are good arguments against the death penalty, but just this like vague kind of legalistic appeal to dignity, I've just never, I've never quite understood. 
yeah so besides the vagueness of that too i'm just thinking you know god is supposed to be this the greatest possible being but the way they paint him is that he's this very thin-skinned you know very easily like and like to not just be offended but to be like offended so much that like i'm going to abandon you to pain and suffering for all of eternity because um you know you said you didn't want to be with me or something like that like i just can't I, I don't picture that as like a very loving being you know like if my small child or something says i hate you you know i am not going to lash out in anger and rage because you know you have offended me uh i'm going to be like oh you know i'm understanding you know i say you know this child doesn't understand you don't probably don't really mean that because you know of x y and z and stuff and i'm going to be much more understanding and i can imagine god you know so much more so like okay you're this tiny uh stupid human <laughs> uh and there's probably something wrong with you that i need to help out you know you poor thing you think you don't want me the greatest possible being i just can't imagine god being like fine fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's so true because it's like the child analogy is is apt because you know we have limitations like when we're compared to God in the same exact way that a child has limitations, you know, compared to us. And the idea of like, well, this child has done something wrong. They don't really understand what they did. And um, their intentions were not really like malicious, you know, in the way, right. like, but uh, they, they have now earned, you know, infinite punishment, like everlasting right. torment, yeah. even though they don't really like it, their limitations need to be factored in here. That was Hart's whole point that like, when you're talking about guilt, you can't ignore the intentions and the limitations of the, uh, you know, the being in question. You can't just look at one side of the ledger and, exactly. you know, ignore the other side. So um, I think there are three questions that are sort of like worth asking at this point. One is that I'm not, uh, is it intelligible to quantify guilt in the way that we're even talking about? Like, oh, well, you're infinitely guilty. Whereas, you know, before you were only like 3.5 guilty, you know, 3.8 <laughs> at most. And, you know, now you're like way more like, so I'm not even sure that's intelligible. I'm not sure guilt is the kind of thing that lends itself to be quantified in that way. Like, you know, I mean, like, I think even utility can be quantified, but I don't know if guilt is even the kind of thing that, that makes sense. You know, it, I don't know if it makes sense to talk about quantities of guilt. Like, I, I must feel like, like aesthetics or something. Oh, she, hey, she's a perfect 10, right? You do it all the time. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> totally quantify aesthetics. That's fine. I, at best, I feel like it would be kind of like probability, you know, where it's like maximum is one, you know, like you're 100% guilty, no fault lies anywhere but with you. Or you can be like partly guilty where, you know, like, okay, you did some stuff wrong, but there were some other factors where uh, guilt goes. But I, I, I agree with you. I have no idea what Man infinite guilt. versus murder, right? So like manslaughter yeah. is, you know, I didn't intend to kill you, but I negligently ran the red light and then I hit yeah. a person versus right. premeditated murder, right? right. So like yes. there's, there's different levels of punishment for yeah. this sort of thing. Right. So. Yeah, ordinarily, like depending on <laughs> what your intentions were and what yeah. your, uh, yeah. you know, what your thoughts were and what your knowledge was like at the time. Um, but I think you're but, right that infinite guilt is like, what, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> Yeah, and you might think, I mean, this is one kind of stupid objection that I thought of here. Like, when you're comparing these two sides of the ledger, like, oh, the transgression and the transgressor. Um, well, okay, so the transgressor, you know, yeah, they have limitations. They don't fully know what they're doing. Um, you know, they obviously, I mean, maybe they don't even understand, like, what's happening, really, um, in their rejection of God. I mean, how could they possibly, you know, like, have a full grasp of God and what it means to be in a relationship with a being of perfect love and goodness? And the hell that's in store for them, you know, like, how could they really even grasp 
their own rejection of God. So the idea that that wouldn't be taken into account is like crazy. I mean, it just totally hollows out any notion of justice, um, even more than it was already hollowed out, you know, because of uh, the way that infernalists um, insist on, you know, uh, you know, they have this particular view that's just like, it's so, every step is so annoyingly wrong. Like literally every single step of the way here is is incorrect. But anyway, um, another question, like I said, this annoying objection that I came up with was like, um, does infinity have this absorption property? So you've got this one side of the ledger with like the act of rejecting God is so terrible. It's, you know, infinitely uh, gravitational <laughs> or whatever Craig said. And then, um, on the other side, you have your like limited uh, intentions and knowledge and imperfections and so on. Well, it doesn't matter because on one side of the ledger, you have this infinite guilt, you know, this infinite value. So it's just, it swamps everything else. It like absorbs the fact that you didn't really understand what your rejection of God entailed. Um, so uh, the thing is like, I don't think that um, infinity would have this absorption property. This is actually kind of in keeping with the, uh, the first point raised because in the context of Pascal's wager, um, Christians will sometimes defend the idea that like infinity doesn't have this absorption property, but you know, they are talking about probabilities, you know, they're saying that like some things can still like, um, it's not important to go into the weeds here. The point is that they deny that infinity has this absorption property in the context of probabilities related to Pascal's wager. But then in this context, if they were to raise this objection, then they would be taking kind of the opposite position, you know, kind of in the same sense that you might deny actual infinites in every other context, except this one, when you're trying to defend this view. I think it's important to note. So a lot of the things that we're talking about, especially when you argue about the existence of God, um, we're having metaphysical arguments and metaphysical arguments are notoriously underdetermined by any kind of evidence or empirical observations. So one of the key methods of attack is to show inconsistencies on the similar position between different contexts and arguments. So like, I think that's a, it's a underrated point. So like, that's why you're looking for like, Hey, look, in this one context, you don't like this, but in this one you do. And, and it's a, it's an important tension point to bring up two apologists to hold their feet to the fire. Right. Cause we, at least we could be consistent. And right now it doesn't look like they are unless maybe there's something else that I'm missing that we've been inconsistent on in our, our presentation here with you know general atheist compatible meta ethics. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe you think that uh, infinity doesn't have an absorption property in the context of Pascal's wager, but it does in the context of guilt, you know. So, but in like, if you're going to defend that, I just need an explanation, you know, like I need some kind of explanation for why you're saying in one context, you know, infinity doesn't have this absorption property in this other context, you are. Oh, and you know. What a surprise about which, and, you know, which. Yeah, and it has to be non ad hoc, right? You can justify anything by appealing to just weird circumstances of like, well, guilt it just is, right? Like it just, there has to be some sort of a principle. There has to be a, a plausible story behind it and not just, I want to get it, the I want to get it in this context, but not that. And I think that's a pretty hard ask. A third question that I wanted to ask was about Pandora's box, you know, as an analogy, it's supposed to be this terrible thing. Um, you know, maybe we could even just stipulate that it's infinitely bad or something like that. But um, is there no difference between someone who intentionally opens the box knowing what that entails versus someone who like knocks it over or something? They unintentionally open it. And even if they, they didn't know what it was anyway, because um, it seems like there's a difference between those two people. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, morally speaking, you know, in terms of guilt, 
And, uh, you know, so that's relevant to this whole eternal conscious torment business, <laughs> because it's like, if you really don't understand what you're doing when you're rejecting God, you know, the sin of infinite gravity, then um, I think that's relevant. You know, your intentions are relevant. I'm, I sound like a scratched record, but it's just so crazy that this is, I mean, this was not even addressed. Like, this is one of Hart's, like, main arguments against the kind of thing that uh, Craig said. And it just wasn't even acknowledged. It wasn't engaged with at all, where it's like, if you're talking about guilt, you can't just talk about offending the dignity of the person involved. You also have to talk about the other side of that ledger, you know, which is the person who committed the transgression. And what did they think they were doing? You know, what were they intending and so on? Like, what are their limitations? Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe if they know not what they do, we should forgive them. I think you bring up a really good point too, because especially about like our limitations and this ties into some of what John was saying too, that, you know, in this world, uh, you know, this world is religiously ambiguous or, you know, it's confusing and stuff. And so if you make a judgment, like, Oh, I don't want to be with God, you know, and that might be based on, you know, misunderstandings or things that you don't um, quite get or, you know, whatever. Um, and I think of like, again, I'm using a lot of analogies with children, but I think it's appropriate. Uh, you know, like if my, child uh when they're young and they're like i want to run away from home you know and i'm like offended by that or something <laughs> they leave or something and i'm not gonna like change the locks you know and be like <laughs> if they decide to change their mind and be like oh wait this was actually a horrible decision um I, you know you would be justified in never letting them return right. there was there was not a story in this book <laughs> about a son that was left and <laughs> prodigally returned or right. something like yeah that. that's right. like, that's not like a thing the yeah. father letting him back in was the moral of the story of what you shouldn't do right? yeah was, my favorite part of the prodigal son story is when the dad is sitting on his porch and he just like takes out his sniper rifle and just like <laughs> clips his son who's like trying to come back to him he's like not no, gonna happen one and done baby you already rejected me once <laughs> no second chances <laughs> yeah so i craig never really explains why this is like decisive, you know, like why can't a person change their mind? You know, if there can't be, if they don't have perfect rationality and they're like, oh damn, this is like awful. I was totally wrong. Um, this is the worst thing ever. And I actually really would like to know God. And yeah, I, I just can't imagine God reacting like, like that. Yeah. So this, oh, sorry. Oh yeah, go ahead. So there's, there's like two points here, I think. One is I think what Craig will say, and I, he says in his other context, if you read like the reasonable faith, reasonable faith book, is that he will say that everyone's culpable. Like you can't say like, oh, I didn't know, right? right. And that I didn't have good arguments. And so he pulls out like the Romans, uh, the Roman, I can't remember what exact version Romans, but like, you know, everyone. Yeah, Romans 118. Yeah, that's yeah. a, I, I think that is a terrible, trans, uh, not translation, excuse me, interpretation of that verse. Oh, uh, uh, certainly, but he, yeah. he pulls out that, if not the verse, the spirit, right? He's, he's yeah. going at it where he wants to say, you can't say, oh, I didn't get good enough arguments. Therefore, I'm not culpable for my non-belief in God's existence. Um, but the thing that gets weird is that there are, like there's, there's a couple of people on Twitter who I interact with who are, um, they were believers, they deconverted, and then they reconverted. Like if Craig, like for all of us, we all were former Christians. What would not Craig would not what Craig wants and what theoretically God wants is for us to reconvert. We find we we find, after all this apologetic stuff we've listened to, we finally see the light and we come back to Jesus, right? And it's just like, oh, but I'm like, I, I explicitly reject Jesus Christ, the son of God. Jesus Christ is not son of God. There is no God, right? I'm blaspheming right here and now. 
I have rejected my previous statements of faith. Now, if I go, like, can I go back? I think presumably Craig believes I can, but if I die, I'm done. <laughs> like, like there's a chance, yeah. but not later. Like it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's this like it's arbitrary. Arbi yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's arbitrary. It's a totally arbitrary cutoff. But the end of the life of a biological organism, it's like, well, if you didn't figure it out by the end of 67 years or 82 years or whatever you get, then it's like, why would that be the end of it? Like, if I were a Christian, I would have to believe that the story of our existence, like the drama of it, goes for a very long time after we're after we die here on Earth. Like, I would have to. And like the uh, the more cynical way of putting that is, I would have to inflate my ontology, and I would have to posit a bunch of things that we don't observe in order to explain what we do observe, because that's what it takes to make Christianity make sense. You know, like if you try to say like, no, this is basically what there is. You have this life. And then you go down the chute or you go up the escalator and then that's it forever. And it's like stasis after that, practically. That's insane. Like that is literally impossible for me to believe. Like I will never, ever yeah. believe anything like that. If I become a Christian again at some point, right. then I'll have to believe that the story continues after our deaths. I, I couldn't. There's no type of Christianity I could accept without uh, at least annihilationism, if not universalism. Right. And so when I interact with a lot of uh, we're pretty privileged in that uh, we get to interact with some very sophisticated philosophers of religion who are Christians and apologists, like uh, I think of some of the best of them. Right. So like David Brentley Hart or um, a more contemporary uh, would be Josh Rasmussen. Right. They're universalists. And when I go to like ref to to respond to a theodicy that gets posted. Um, or when like someone like Cameron Bertuzzi will reference Josh Rasmussen's work and he's like, hey, here's this theodicy that, that he has about free will. And it's like, well, that works. That's harder to refute than the standard crap, um, but only because he's a universalist, right? So like the major objection I would bring up against like that sort of a theodicy, I have to go to different ones because the universal will sidestep the hardest problems, right? The, the, the existence of hell. Like, I cannot square in my head how a perfectly loving being would create a thing of eternal conscious torture. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense with no way out. And that kind of leads us into um, something that I was really curious about was just what does he mean by rejecting God anyway? Um, so you brought up reasonable faith, and I have actually another quote, a quote from that. So on page 47, he says, um, which I found this kind of, surprising because it's just kind of the standard uh low-level apologist uh sort of claim but he says when a person refuses to come to christ it is never just because of a lack of evidence or because of intellectual difficulties at root he refuses to come because he willingly ignores and rejects the drawing of god's spirit on his heart no one in the final analysis really fails to become a christian because of a lack of arguments he fails to become a christian because he loves darkness rather than light and wants nothing to do with God. So like, I think that's, um, so I was actually surprised by that statement. Craig I, said that? Craig, so that's in reasonable faith. Yeah. Wow. Uh, which is like, you know, the standard Turek sort of thing <laughs> claim. Yeah, no, because I swear, I thought you said Craig, and then I was just like, why did he start reading Ray Comfort? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's it was right from reasonable faith. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was trying to reference, I think. Yeah, that's exactly the line. Yeah, so I, I wonder... I mean, so he seems to be going this, you know, goofy, you know, Romans one eighteen, you know, everyone's just suppressing the truth. But then in other places, he, what's really 
is weird to me is in other places, um, he says, well, one thing he says is what about, okay, the unreached peoples, like, you know, tribesmen or whatever, uh, the standard people who've never heard of Jesus. And in one of his um, articles on reasonable faith that they put out, um, he allows for the possibility that people who've never heard could be saved in virtue of Christ's death, you know, that they're beneficiaries of Christ's death without having to form the actual, you know, beliefs uh, that are associated with the gospel, um, which is interesting. So he allows for like the possibility that these people still go to heaven. Um, but of course they have to respond to whatever general revelation in the right way. I don't know what that means, you know, like how you actually respond in the right way, like what sorts of general beliefs you have to come to, I'm not sure. And then for more confusion, he then says in another spot that uh, when he was sort of accused of claiming that atheists were irrational, he says, no, I don't think atheists are irrational. So in a video, um, Craig says, um, certainly God's existence could be a lot clearer than it is. No one is saying that it's uh, that it's compelling that every rational person has to believe that God exists on the basis of the evidence. I've avoided, I think, uh, if you look at my work, trying to bludgeon opponents uh, as Keith. So he was. This was um, a, a discussion with Keith. I think Keith Parsons. Probably that, Parsons. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, bludgeon opponents as Keith seems to think I do. I don't think I've ever said that atheists are irrational. What I've argued is that faith is reasonable. Reasonable faith. Uh, that is, it's uh, ra uh, rational in view of the evidence to have faith. And I don't think I've ever denounced atheists as irrational. Now, to be sure, I think that many atheists do believe some irrational things. For example, I do think it's irrational to believe that the universe popped into existence uncaused out of nothing. I think it's irrational to believe, as some atheists do, that nothing ever begins to exist. Uh, I think it's irrational to think that time is not real, as some have claimed. But I've never tried to say that my opponents in these debates or the people I'm trying to persuade are irrational. Rather, I would simply disagree with Keith and Professor Hick that the universe is uh, as religiously ambiguous, ambiguous as uh, he would like to claim, um, and so on and so forth. So, so on the one hand, I mean, he, in his book, you know, he says, no, it's never, it never comes down to like, you're just not convinced, like you just don't want anything to do with God. But then like in another context now, um, oh no, like, I don't want to like offend anybody. Like atheists are rational as well. Like, so I don't know, all that seems very confusing. So I don't know what he actually thinks when he's saying that people reject God. Like, so is it just that they don't believe sometimes or is it like this personal rejection that they're like, nope, don't want anything to do with that being or what? But... rejecting God is kind of crucial to Hart's argument as well, because, you know, his whole point is that a rational being just, like, wouldn't reject God. You know, it has nothing to do with, oh, well, do we have free will? Are we determined? Is God coercing us? It's like, no, if you're a rational being without any ignorance or without any, like, defection in your rational faculties, then you will freely choose to be in a relationship with a being of perfect love and goodness. You know, if you do what's best for yourself, then that is what you will do.
you know, like, especially considering the alternative, you know, so like any rational being is going to freely choose any rational being who's like not ignorant, you know, who has any grasp at all of what it means to be in a relationship with a being of perfect love and perfect goodness, as opposed to being separated from that being, they will of course understand that by definition, that's like one of the best things, if not the best thing that you could ever be a part of. So if you will what's best for you, which if you're rational, then you do. And the only reason that you wouldn't freely choose to be in a relationship with God is because you're either ignorant in some sense, there's some information you're lacking, there's something you don't know, or because of limitations of your capacities, you know, or because you're just like, you know, <laughs> you're like self-destructive or something, or you're, um, you know, it, it has to be some kind of imperfection in, in your rationality, you know? So like in any other context, we would recognize a tendency towards self-destruction is something that we should intervene in. So if someone wants to exactly. cut themselves off from an eternity of bliss or an eternity of being in a relationship with a being of perfect love, we would never accept that. Like, well, we got to, you know, respect their sacred free will and allow them to be eternally tortured. Like, no, God shouldn't let us do that. And then we'll thank him later, you know, in the same way that like if a petulant child doesn't want to do something that their dad tells them to do, they, if they're, you know, once they're uh, relieved of their ignorance and their uh, limited faculties to some extent, they'll go, oh, that was obviously right. Now that I'm not limited in my faculties in the way I was, and now that I'm not ignorant in the way I was, that was obviously the right thing to do. Thank you for doing that. You should not have let me stick my hand in the fire because, oh gosh, free will is just so goddamn important or like, or anything like that. And if, if there's like an adult who has some tendency towards self-destruction, then of course we should intervene, you know, we shouldn't let, uh, you know, mentally ill people harm themselves, you know, and like you would have to be mentally ill to reject a relationship with, you know, a being of perfect love and goodness. Like, if you know what that means, you will choose to do it, you know, so maybe the Christian God is not a being of perfect love and goodness, but if we're talking about that, if we're talking about, you know, a being of perfect goodness, <laughs> which is supposedly synonymous with the Christian God, I'm, I, I don't know how it's even possible to maintain that given like the Bible, but if we're talking about a relationship with a being of perfect love and goodness, any rational being, rational in the sense that they want what's best for themselves, you know, and so on, um, by most like analyses of what it means to be rational, of course they'll choose to be in a relationship with God, you know, no one would reject it. Which Craig seems to uh, agree with that because as you both brought up earlier, he literally says in heaven, you know, where you have full knowledge, you just can't help but want god like you're just drawn to him like uh electromagnet or whatever so like he agrees so and that what? makes sense it's just it, right. it doesn't make sense that anyone would be in hell for an eternity if they have the option to leave they would leave you know it, like again it's just some kind of imperfection or uh you know ignorance and like both of those things are in the power of god you know to eradicate so like if anyone is in hell it's ultimately his fault yeah so like one of the things that gets me there is that so we talked about informed consent, right? So like informed choices. So like the postpartum, um, you know, or postmortem. Excuse me. <laughs> After I'm pregnant, I'll accept God. No, um, that would be a miracle. Um, the but like after death, when I have like perfect knowledge of like, oh well, God exists, and Christianity was the true religion, right? Like you gotta, you know, that's those are big questions, right? And apparently, Craig thinks it's rational. To, to, to not accept one of those things. Um, so what does it mean? Like, like, to, like normal Christian teaching of like conservative theology is that like you deserve 
eternal conscious torture for whatever moral transgression you do. Any sin in its gravity is so strong that you deserve hell. And it's only by Jesus's sacrifice and free offer of salvation that we escape hell, right? You're born condemned. You're born with original sin. And so you, the, I think it seems like, but Craig says those sins aren't what, those finite sins don't send you to hell. It's this infinite gravity of knowingly, of rejecting God. But then which, which one is it? Like you have to say any given sin is equivalent to knowingly rejecting God, which doesn't make a lot of sense because Emerson, you brought up the quote, um, you know, when they were crucifying Jesus, that was a sin. And what does Jesus say in, in Luke? Um, it's uh, 23, 34, I think. Uh, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> so how is it that in some sins, they clearly don't know what they're doing, and so they shouldn't be held responsible. But then somehow in this veil of ignorance that I'm rational of not accepting Craig's conclusions, I'm somehow knowingly rejecting God. And when I can perfectly know what I was wrong, I'm not allowed the chance to repent. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, I mean, that's one of Hart's key points, you know, because like I said, it kind of centers around guilt. And his point is that, you know, what Hart is saying is in line with what Jesus said. He's like, if you don't know what you're doing, then that's exculpatory to some extent. You know, like your guilt is different than if you know what you're doing and you do it intentionally, than if you don't know what you're doing. And perhaps you should be forgiven if you don't really know what you're doing. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, yeah, that's crucial in determining guilt. But also, you know, there's this related point about, like, who would reject God? You know, like, someone who's either insane or ignorant or, you know, somehow imperfect or lacking in some sense. If we're defining God as a being of perfect love and we're talking about rejecting God as, you know, willingly not being in a relationship with this being of perfect love. So, um, yeah, I mean, once again... Craig does not even engage with any of this. You know, he doesn't engage with Hart's key points about guilt, which, by the way, are consistent with every other, you know, it's consistent with Christian with Christian teaching. It's consistent with our moral intuitions. Like what Hart is saying is not like some weird, you know, sp case of special pleading or something like that's what Craig is doing, you know. But um, yeah, I mean, Hart is a Christian. Right? Yeah, of course. Like, yeah. People might not. Some viewers might not realize David Brentley Hart is a Christian. Mm -hmm. So, like, this is not some atheist argument that's hostile to the faith, right? And, and I, like you said, who would reject God? Like, I mean, hey, we're all here. We're all atheists. We're all former believers. If I die and all of a sudden I'm in front of God and there's Jesus, he's like, I was the son of God, you idiot. And I'm going to be like, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I really was convinced that this was false. And I would ask for forgiveness and beg and beg for it and worship. Like, I clearly was wrong. And I recognize the gravity of the wrongness once I'm in the presence of a perfectly good being, I would know like, Oh, and well. you'd be happy by the way, this wouldn't be like some terrible revelation. If God is a being of perfect love and goodness, that can only be good news. Now, of course, I don't think Christians believe in a being of perfect love and goodness. At least most of them don't, but I'm saying if there is such a being, that would be fantastic news. You know, that would be like the best possible news you could get. But um, yeah, when it comes to the rejection of God, it is interesting to ask, like, who rejects God? Like, you know, are we, like, because like I said, I don't think any rational being without some ignorance or imperfection could possibly do so. But, you know, like, do Muslims reject God, according to Craig? Like, do Hindus reject God? Do Mormons reject God? Because they certainly don't think they are. You know, like, they're earnestly trying to pursue God and, like, follow, like, sometimes at great cost and sacrifice to themselves. They're trying to follow God. They're not rejecting God by any sane definition of rejection. And yet, uh, I doubt that 
you know, Craig believes that people who are worshiping the monkey god Hanuman are going to end up in heaven, you know, or any other polytheist, or like setting aside like Mormons and Hindus, like what about atheists and agnostics who are pursuing the good? You know, like if God is identical with goodness, then people who are pursuing the good are pursuing God, whether they realize it or not. Um, so that doesn't seem like a rejection to me. But, you know, in any event, it seems like ignorance is uh, one of the leading causes of this um, sin of infinite gravity. You know, like if, if all those people are rejecting God by Craig's lights, then um, ignorance is the main problem here. And that's something that's within God's power to ameliorate. That That is something I would like to see Craig address because uh, I don't want to take any cheap shots, but it from all the stuff that we've been talking about and looking at where he said different things, it seems like he is saying that kind of tying into your point with these atheists, like someone like Graham Oppie, you know, um, incredibly thoughtful and well thought out. And it's not like he's like being flippant or, you know, dismissive or anything like that. But it seems to me that Craig is almost accusing him, maybe not directly, but in some way that he's like this insane person, like you're saying, who underneath the smokescreen of all his very sophisticated arguments, just really, really doesn't want to have anything to do with God. He loves the darkness. Right, <laughs> exactly. And that just seems absurd to me. Like I, the people I've seen, you know, these um, very well-respected atheist philosophers, um, the idea that that describes them just seems like absurd, like totally implausible. Um, and I don't know if Craig is sort of pandering to an audience when he was writing that in reasonable faith or something. I don't know, but I mean, if you kind of push him on that, it's like, well, so what are you saying about like these people who are also your kind of your colleagues, uh, you know, that you've talked to, are they irrational or not? This is, it's a, it's a very, it's is a very good point to push against, especially this sort of conservative evangelical Christianity that Craig is the paramount defender of right like this is his eschatology is particularly horrible and i don't think it's very defensible and yeah i think this is just the prime area to push on for exactly those reasons right he has to eventually to withhold on this being somehow morally justifiable it has to be this knowing rejection but then like you said most of the like like my own deconversion was because the bible taught that homosexual relationships were morally impermissible and I had uh, close friends who were gay, and I was like, their love is the same as the love of my wife. The Bible is teaching something morally wrong. You know, it's, the Bible's got a moral teaching wrong. What else did it get wrong? It was because I was morally convicted that something was false that sparked the doubts. And it's just like the, more, like the Mormons, the, the Muslims, the Hindus, and all the other religions. They pursue their God. The Mormons suffered per persecution famously right for their beliefs so it's not like and that's supposed to be evidence that the apostles had to have witnessed jesus because they somehow suffered persecution and you're going to tell me that doesn't count like they're knowingly rejecting god it's i mean they even believe that jesus is the son of god right they just by craig's lights get the nature of god wrong so well and even for myself like losing my faith was not something i wanted like it was very painful and i had every reason to continue you know to if i'm going to like choose my beliefs like Craig thinks you can, you know, like my wife is a believer still. Um, my parents are strong believers still. My wife's parents are all, uh, and her family are all strong believers. <laughs> and so like, I'm surrounded, you know, by believers. And, you know, so for me, this is not like a, 
yeah, like I just suddenly get to, you know, yeah, go darkness, you know, or whatever. Um, it was very painful. And I admit, like, I'm even now, like, I, I feel like the teachings of hell have la uh, left a, a, a lasting sort of um, trauma, almost like uh, it was something I was deathly afraid of. And so, and you can edit this out, uh, Emerson, but I kind of want to tell Craig, like, fuck you. Like, um, this was like, not something I was like, you know, I just want to do what I want. I don't want anything to do with God. You know, it was, it was like super painful and like super, um, like hard. Like it was hard on my family. It was hard on my, uh, parents. It was hard on, uh, my psyche, you know, everything, giving up all this stuff that I believed in. And, and so it's like, I, and I don't, and I'm not someone who I hate pain. I don't want to suffer. You know, like uh, I'm a wuss when it comes to pain, like get me out of that, you know? So I, I just like, I'm going to tell Craig, like, no way, like n there's no chance that I would ever be like, I given the chance, like Emerson has described perfectly loving being perfectly fulfilled for all eternity um, or never ending suffering. I think the choice is pretty clear. Yeah. No, I mean, if I could choose, if doxastic volunteerism were true, then I would choose to be a Christian because, you know, it is hard on my family as well. And it's like, I would like to relieve them of that pain, you know? And it's like, if I could choose to be a Christian, then I would, you know? And it's like, I've never stopped looking into it either. Yeah. Um. You know, and and I do try to look like I, I am kind of like, uh, I would like it to work, you know, but it, it's not my fault that it doesn't. <laughs> it just doesn't like... You know, I would like to believe it, but I, you know, if God exists, then um, I guess that's not the role that He wanted me to play. He wanted me to play a more atheistic role, um, because I, it's it's literally not up to me. And you'd hope to see like your loved ones again, like the idea that I'd never see my family again. You know, like that's not particularly appealing. I'm, I'm okay with that part of it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I like to point out that like I didn't ever hear. I was a Christian until I was 28 years old. I never heard of William Lane Craig until I apostatized and tried to convince myself to go back because my family all believed much like you guys. Oh, interesting. Right? So like I never heard a damn bit of apology. I mean, no, I heard a little bit of apologetics, but it was basically warmed over Biola crap. That way you had like a, a, a seminar, like I had a little seminar and you could go to it to learn. And I went and I was just like, even as a believer, I was like, this isn't going to convince anybody because I, like, I had tried a lot of it when I tried to witness to my non-Christian friends and yeah, it just didn't work. And I, I've thought about it and it was like, oh, well, the universalism stuff eliminates most of it. But like when I hear especially the sort of like conservative hell exists Christianity, I like I just couldn't bring myself to believe that shit again. I just couldn't. Right. I couldn't teach. I can't fathom teaching that to my children. That's what that's what gets me the most. And like there's a Unitarian, a Unitarian Universalist church like around the corner from me that I could in theory go to. And I thought about it because it was like, oh, it'd be great for the kids. Like that's one of the ways our church grew. I was a trustee for eight years. And the way the church actually grew members was they brought in families because they offered free childcare effectively Wednesday nights. And then they would have a thing where the kids did something one Sunday. They get the parents to come in. And then that was the primary method of growth, right? So, like, that's literally how the churches, like, sustained themselves and didn't go into financial ruin. But, like, 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 just that alone would be good. But then, like, it sort of would be nice, but I just, I just don't see it. Like, it just seems unbelievable to me. Even the universalist part of it, it doesn't make any sense. And even if it's, it's almost like I like to call it the rascal's wager. 
if universal, if I've convinced from studying about an all-loving God that universalism must be true, but I'm convinced that God doesn't exist, well, then what incentive do I have to convert? Because <laughs> I'll be saved anyway. Well, possibly less time in hell. <laughs> I mean, well, most universalists believe in hell. They just don't think it's eternal. Oh, really? Yeah, That's... everyone and everyone will ultimately be saved, but it's not like you die and wake up in heaven. Even heart? Yep. So the moral objection of torture being morally impermissible? I don't think so. I mean, the thing is, I, a lot of these people, you know, they'll clarify this as if it matters. Well, they'll be like, well, I don't believe in like literal flames. It's like, okay, but you, you don't want to go there, right? Like you don't want to go to hell. Like it's a terrible, terrible place to be or state to be in or whatever. Um, doesn't really matter if there are literal flames. I mean, if even if there aren't literal flames, Flames were invoked to help us understand what it would be like. Like, right. So, like, either way, the idea good. of like eternal separation, like like eternal, yeah. um, eternal solitary confinement, yeah. like extended solitary confinement, is considered torture. Like, we don't allow that to happen. Well, and I've had, yeah, I've had people be like, "Well, you know, it's not the cartoon version of hell, you know, of pitchforks and flames." I'm like, that was never the problem. <laughs> mental torture is still torture exactly mental torture, mental yeah. torture is still torture there's no yeah. distinction like i don't care how you flesh it out it's supposed to be the worst possible thing that you could imagine you know or, or maybe beyond whatever you could imagine you know and so it's like i don't i don't care how you describe it it's uh you know unbearable and it's never ending and that's that's the problem yeah I, I mean the way that Hart describes it though it, it's it is kind of like restorative i guess like it is kind of um like you're being brought into a relationship with god it's not like punitive it's not like oh well you know like this it, you're sort of being transformed into someone who would want to be in a relationship with god or who uh you know would even desire or deserve that i guess but like you know there are some people who it's true like they don't want to be in a relationship with god and it the thing is, like, instead of from this is my understanding of what like universalists believe, like you're not just like granted perfect knowledge or whatever, like at the moment of death, but it's just that the story continues after your death. Like there's continued moral development, there's continued evolution, and some of that involves possibly some time in hell or limbo or something. And eventually, ultimately, all will be saved in the end. No one's gonna be like tormented for all of time. But um there is kind of like a moral order to it. You know, like I think he mentioned kind of offhandedly that like he has no objection to Hitler ending up in heaven because by the time he is in heaven, he will have, you know, gone through these like eons of like moral and spiritual transformation where he effectively won't be the person who you're thinking of. Um, and it'll seem appropriate that he's there at that point. Okay. So this, that just strikes me as so implausible just because it's like, well, well then what is hell? Is it this really bad I'm in pain constant thing and I'm supposed to have moral development or is it just like this life? And if it's just like this life, then why do I die? Why do I leave this world and then go to another one? Right. It's just the same continuum. I mean, I th the way I've heard like Josh Rasmussen talk about it is like, I think what he kind of suspects, I, I don't know if he would like fully sign on the dotted line here, but what he seems to suspect is like you were in heaven before, like you might've existed before earth and then you kind of consented to come here. And this is also um, what Mormons believe and what Jews believe. Like they believe that you consented to come to earth um, sometimes like signing a literal contract. Like you kind of knew the risks at least. And you chose to enter this kind of moral arena of like suffering um, for whatever reason. But, you know, you kind of opted to be here and then you'll return someday to, to where you started. But I think that's what um, 
Josh at least suspects, but it, it is certainly like what Jews believe and what Mormons believe. Yeah, I saw, I saw that. Um, I saw that view, and that's definitely at least better, I suppose. Although it does seem very strange that an all-loving God would be like, "Hey, you want to enter the torture machine?" Like you could just be one of those babies that gets born and gets thrown in a microwave. Like trigger warning, sorry, but that fucking happens, right? And then you know, like, well, you know, like I'm in this perfectly loving state with God in heaven, but I really want to step into that rape machine. Like I just, well, every, everyone hey, says you would get bored in heaven. I mean, maybe that, that's what that, you know. I, I just, I just, I just, maybe there's some moral development I could have after being raped, and I maybe I just need to go into that box. Like I, that just strikes me as insane. Who makes the box? Why would God make a box to do that? Like it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> yeah, and it it is kind of unclear why anyone would leave. You know, like I don't know, just like boredom or like what? Like I can't imagine what being in heaven and being like I would like to go to Earth. You know? Yeah, like what? Like oh, you're gonna learn from your suffering, right? The soul building theodicy, which doesn't make any sense because God could just be like, here's the knowledge. You could just create you in a state of having the knowledge without actually having to have gone through it, right? He could just create you at any mental state or capacity that God ever wanted because there's no contradiction in doing so. I mean, so wouldn't that? Wouldn't you? I kind of a uh, you know. I like soul building in theory. It just happens to not be the world that we live in. Like Draper's reply to when, when Josh Rasmussen brought this up to him, he's like, yeah, you know, it's not that that doesn't make sense. It's just, that doesn't apply to the world we live in. Like we don't live in a world where like suffering is, is helping you spiritually and morally develop. Like, it's not like this moral arena where all the suffering makes sense or something like that. It's like, that's just not the world we live in. And why do you have like complete ignorance of the, of your, where you came from you know like like it's like we have no idea anymore that when you come here into this world it's like you don't know that that's what you're trying to do um like oh i, I decided to come here because i want to build some moral character it's like you come in here completely slate clean i have no idea where i came from or anything like that that seems bizarre to me yeah i think so i like to i like to steal this one so this is a, a almost like a frank turk back at you where the only way reason soul building makes any sense is because they have to steal from the naturalist worldview, where yeah. atheism, right? We the only way we get new capabilities is through growth and pain, like you know, pain no gain sort of a thing. We have to go through this painful thing of of gaining new capabilities. That's the only way that's valuable. But God does not grow, and if God is the ontological basis of all value, which Christians will tell us when they give us the moral argument, then growth is not valuable. <laughs> like, why are you valuing growth? Why is that good? We do, because that's the kind of being we are, which makes sense in a naturalist universe, but it sure doesn't on the theistic one, especially not the kind where you ground all moral values on God's nature. I am, like, weirdly sympathetic to the idea that causal history matters. So just the idea that God could, yeah, he could create us, like, with all of our, like, memories and knowledge and so on. Like, maybe it's just because God created us this way, but that something about that feels, like, illegitimate. Like, if I was created right now with my wife, you know, five minutes ago with all of our memories, there's something I really wouldn't like about that. You know, like I like the causal history, like it feels important, I guess. Um, and again, maybe you can say, well, God made you that way. And if he'd made you differently, you wouldn't care about causal history and you wouldn't have to go through all this bullshit <laughs> of like, a, you know, suffering on earth. Like, and that's, you know, that's valid, but I'm just saying as I am, I actually do care about causal history, you know? So I don't think I would want to be created just like with all my memories and with all my knowledge and just be like, you know, Emerson, that's because naturalism is true, and that's the only basis you have for valuing. 
Right. You were sitting. I forgot. We're sitting on um, Nietzsche's lap to slap him in the face. Exactly. And <laughs> Still I, I, building I, the Odyssey Star. So it's one of those things that like, you talk about, like grounding the goods, right? And there's a value. You have to ground a value here. And if God's nature grounds all values, right, which is Craig is famous for, um, then what grounds the good of growth? What grounds the value of moral having moral freedom? God has no moral freedom. I mean, Literally according to Christians, maybe, but according to Jews, there actually is, you know, and according to Mormons, I mean, like, it, it's interesting that Jews and Mormons, like, they do kind of line up in, in kind of weird areas, but like the pre-existence thing is one of them, the consenting to come to earth is another one, and the um, the development of God is another one. So there's this book that my uh, late mother-in-law gave me called The Secret Life of God, I think, but it is about this exact point where it's like, no, God actually does grow. He's not just like in this stasis of perfection like he actually does evolve and like become better because it is good to that's like process theology right is that process theology or uh, process theism no that's more like that's more christian specific but that's another i hadn't thought of that but no mormons i mean obviously mormons believe in a very literal every, understanding every, of theosis but every christian theologian who talks about god as the necessary being god is the tri-omni perfect being god is changeless god is timeless like all of that goes out the fucking window yeah so no, I, 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 I totally i totally it. agree like this is totally incompatible with like normal christianity but i'm but just saying like jews our... I, the jews i don't get I, I i thought jews like at least the ortho I, I was actually born in bensonhurst in brooklyn so i'm familiar with um a lot of i a lot like when i was very young i was watched by a jewish couple often mm -hmm. and so but I, they thought of God, as far as I understood, also as a perfect, you know, perfect being theology. God is, God was uh, a necessary being. God is unchanging. All that kind of stuff. Like I mean, the, they're, they're, they're all, all over the, the window. I mean, they're all over the place, like Christians. Like oh, that's fair. Um, but you know, I mean, like I remember in a debate with Hitchens and Harris on one side, and like David Wolpe and I think his name was Brad Artson on the other side, where he explicitly denied like the triomni God. He's like. No, God is not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnibenevolent. But he's like, that's not the Jewish tradition. That's like a Greek bastardization of like what God is supposed to be. Um, he's like philosophers in Athens are responsible for that. And then Christians picked it up or whatever. He's like, that's not the Jewish uh, belief system. But I mean, I've heard this from like, you know, other rabbis and other, like, um, I think the guy who wrote The Secret Life of God is a rabbi. I can't remember. I think it might be like David Aaron or something, but it sounds like I made that up. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, I, I mean... You know, I mean, my in-laws are all Jewish, so I and they're all like different kinds of Jew. So like, they're they're there definitely not on the same page about uh, you know a number of things. So I mean, traditional like Islamic apologetics, um, you'll see not the most orthodox. So especially in Bensonhurst, you'll have the the, the big hat um, folks, and so perhaps theirs is a bit different. I didn't act with them, but like the conservative, like the Ben Shapiro's of the world. Like that form of uh, Orthodox Judaism would hold as God as a perfect being. Like, like the contingency argument just go contingency argument goes, um, like the Kalam cosmological goes. Like, so much goes out the window. Like moral argument. Like I'm trying to think of what you get out. Like, like there's so many things that that forces you to give up, right? And so, and you, not saying you can't, right? But like. If you're in on any of those apologetic arguments and you buy into this, kiss them goodbye, right? You're revising huge swaths of not just your specific religion in Christianity, but just 
your entire philosophical foundations and approach. They're gone. Like that's a big bullet. Like you want to bite it, go ahead. But I don't know if it's a if it's a bullet though, because none of those arguments work. You know, so it's like, I mean, like, is it really that much of a cost? They'll tell you they do, though. That's the problem, right? So, like, take your poison, right? Which way you want to go, boys? No, if I, that's that's another thing that bothers me is, like, if I had to be a Christian, or if I were going to be a Christian again, it would have to be this extremely unorthodox, like, form of it. And it wouldn't be totally divorced from tradition, right? Like, it, it wouldn't be, like, something I just made up ad hoc, but it would be an extreme minority, like, fringe position. Like, most Christians wouldn't even claim me anyway. Yeah, you'd still be going to hell. Yeah, I'd still be going <laughs> to hell anyway. <laughs> I like to say, so, like, there's two Christian apologists who I found to be um, particularly, maybe because I've interacted with them so much, but, like, Randall Rouser and Josh Rasmussen, right? So, like, if I wanted to... Two people with, who are definitely going to hell. Yeah, um... <laughs> Uh, I mean, Randall will talk to people who will tell you that uh, progressive Christianity is worth, worse than atheism. Um, but like, you know, Randall's approach to the Old Testament uh, atrocities and genocides, right? His reading of it, I find utterly implausible. But if I was ever going to believe again, that's the way. Like, that that's the only way. And I think, you know, Rasmussen's view, um, especially where it was like, oh, we all consented to come here and universalism is true of a sort, right? Like, I don't think that's plausible. That's why I, I don't believe it. But if there was a conversion point, that would be it, right? And, and just to be so oh, far, sorry. far removed. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to interject and say, I'm not sure that's Rasmussen's view, but I've just heard him kind of like toy around with it or whatever. I, um, I've right. heard the same. Yeah. Yeah, um, so he's, yeah. He's, he's mentioned it a few times in, in Twitter discussions and I think in some of his videos. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, so there were, it's another view that I wanted to ask you guys about um, just to kind of get back to hell for a second. Um, and again, I don't think we addressed it yet, maybe, but um, the idea that hell is eternal, not because of any one sin. And this is getting a little bit away from Craig, but again, it's another thing I've come across. Uh, and it's the idea that, well, you just, you know, you go to hell and for your sins here on earth and they would be finite or your punishment would be finite, except for you just keep sinning in hell and so then that kind of prolongs your uh, stay a little bit more and then you just keep doing it more and then the idea is you just keep doing that to perpetuity uh have you guys come across that and what do you think about that it seems analogous to like the self-destructive case you know like because i mean if you're talking about sin at that point like it is keeping you in hell and some people think that's what hell is it's like you're sort of being left alone to your sin and you you've separated yourself from god you know through your like free choice or whatever and Hell is just separation from God being left to your own sin. It's it's more like the C.S. Lewis like great divorce view where like yeah humanity is just kind of drained of any semblance of like love or uh you know of, of like divine light at all, and then you're just you just kind of separate yourself from other people. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So like one, there's this weird enforcement where like oh I have to be in solitary, right? So like I don't know uh, I, I like the MCU Mar the Marvel Cinematic Universe. If you watch Thor: Love and Thunder. Right. There's like that heavenly city of the gods and, you know, Thor like interrupts their their thing. And he's he's like pissing off Zeus, who's like running the show. And Zeus is like, if you keep this up, you would not be invited to the orgy. Right. And it's just like, oh, well, like, could hell just be that? Like, I think you famously asked, like, could you have sex in hell, Emerson, when you had another conversation? Right. And it's just like, well, if there's a bunch of us down there. Like, like all that fornication is not of God. 
and like uh, separated from God, like what, what what's going on? Like I I can't go do that. Like is it just a bad time? Like why is it inherently always bad? Why must I be separated? So like there's this thing of like God setting up a Kafka trap where you just can't get out of it, to say the least. Even if you wanted to, and like the intent matters. And then there's also the like if if a warden ran a prison and the 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 prisoners had locked the doors from the inside and they were like torturing each other or torturing themselves, like continually hurting them. If the warden didn't put a stop to it, like forcefully, we would arrest the warden and throw him in another jail. <laughs> right? Speaking of jail uh, analogies, the one individual who I had talked to who had used this sort of defense was like, well, you know, like if you go to jail for murder, you're going to be in there for say a long time. And then let's say, you know, you're, um, sentences coming to an end and then like on the last day you decide to murder another cellmate and so okay then now you're they're not going to let you out now you you have to stay in there longer and then you just keep doing this and i'm just thinking like well you know there's a problem if like the jail just lets you keep murdering <laughs> other inmates you know at some point they're going to actually like remove you uh from the general population yeah, I mean, there's just there are like two major disanalogies there. I mean, first of all, the freedom of getting to like live in the United States is not the same thing as having a you know relationship with a being of perfect love. Right. Okay, so like maybe the person doesn't want to get out of prison because they're like used to being in prison or something. Right. But you know, it, it's not like oh, but it, it's just so irrational because you're giving up you know working at McDonald's or whatever <laughs> cool thing you can do after you've been convicted of murder and. Like, <laughs> 25 years or so in jail or something so i mean that's not strictly speaking i can imagine many cases where that might be rational you know whereas right. it is never rational to cut yourself off from god like especially once you know what you're doing um but yeah so i mean just the the way that people try to draw analogies it like really is um insulting to god like in in many many ways yeah well, and there's I, some picking and choosing too like you know when it's convenient we'll use uh our judiciary system you know our judicial system as um an analogy but also god's love is not like our love um <laughs> you know when it comes to that oh that's just your definition of love god's love is different you know so yeah, I feel you, like you weirdly think that it's loving to not let let people like self-destructively harm themselves for all of eternity Right. Um, yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I think that like in any other case, you wouldn't let people uh, harm themselves. And that's like what God is doing if he allows people to be in hell forever. Or if, if we're just, we keep ourselves in, in the hell because we continue sinning or something. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it is akin to allowing someone like a child, you know, with their limited faculties to continue harming themselves, to like continue engaging in self-destructive behavior out of this like uh, respect for their free will. Which is, right. of course, not what we would do in literally any other context. Right. Especially if we had the ability to actually do something about it. Right. I mean, the things that don't make sense, so like it sort of ignores the the harm portion of it. It ignores like like how horrible hell is. Like, I don't know, like it, about you guys, like I've had some things like for work where I, I literally had to like I was trouble troubleshooting something on a ship. So I literally had to go to sea. And I was just like isolated, didn't want to be there. And I got like really sad. I missed my wife. And like I just got like really, really just down. And like it, the situation like wasn't great. And like if that's even a fraction of what the mildest form of hell is, let alone the fucking flames, <laughs> right? Like to get, I want to get out of that alone. 
Like that's like part of like the whole thing. Like you know, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Like 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 pun like corporal punishment in some sense sort of does work. Like in military, like when they do like military training, like in in our history, like we're a pretty brutal species. That does work to a point, right? We might not be humane, but it, somehow it does work in many cases. And like that would change you and reform you to want you to get out. So it doesn't make sense that you would somehow continue this. Like the one thing you want is for it to just stop. So like it, it just it just doesn't make any sense. And I also think the punishment, you know, for a perfectly good being would at least it makes sense to me that punishment would serve some kind of a purpose you know like but on this infernalist view hell could only be pure uh retribution purely retributive purely vindictive you know um, it serves no other function whatsoever um because it can't it can't reform you know it can't correct it it, it doesn't really do anything um at all so i i find that to be uh something very bizarre to attribute to a being that's perfectly good, perfectly intelligent, right? Perfectly rational to yeah. just, yeah. No, I, I mean, and a lot of Christian, you know, a lot of Christians have noticed that. And um, the ones who take it the most seriously end up being universalists, you know, where they're like, well, actually that's wrong. Like hell does, it's not pure retribution. It does play a role in your development and evolution. Like it is ultimately kind of restorative. You know, and it can be painful, like being like morally purified and being like, you know, letting go of your uh, sins or whatever, and being like more perfectly loving or good or becoming more like God, like can be a painful process or whatever. Um, but it's not like you're being lit on fire or something, you know, and it's also like it is playing a role, you know, it is it is torment, but it's not punitive and it's not just purely retributive and it's not going to go on forever. And it's not just, you know. Just the idea that you you're just sent there after death and you're just like that forever, you know, like it just doesn't serve any other purpose other than just like some kind of ornament of justice. Like, oh, yeah. this is th this is like you know what justice looks like or something like that. And it's like, can I, uh, you know, nine quadrillion years into my uh, you know torment? Yeah, like it, it, it's just like this is so absurd. Like at some point it has to stop. Like Do I don't understand how people sincerely. It literally just reflecting on what infinite means or like what forever means or eternal yes means. i'm glad you brought enough to just put it away forever no one I, should believe this i'm glad you brought that up because i was going to ask you like do you do you think that a lot of it is just that because when you say forever it's like i don't know how to say this but it just kind of rolls off the tongue and it's like um there's not something like punchy about the word that really makes you think about it. it's like oh yeah flippantly forever it never ends but I feel like a lot of people don't really think about that or understand what that means. And sometimes I even find it maybe more helpful to actually pick a finite description, but something that's like mind-bogglingly large. And then when you think about it like that, like the amount of time it would take to, say, move all the grains of sand on a beach um, from one side of the earth to the other where you have to crawl the whole way, you know, like the amount of time that would take. And the whole time you're on fire and <laughs> crawling through glass and needles, you know, something like that. And then just the sheer like horror of that, you know, and how long that would take and how utterly like um, unbearable that would be. Like that sometimes seems to me to be more um, 
graspable than like just, oh, it's, it's never ending. It's forever, you know? Um, right. And then you immediately contrast that with like, oh, and, and God's mercies are new every morning. You know, like, oh, God is merciful. I think like, I know that's coming from a tweet. Is a Twitter guy? A pastor who tweets <laughs> yes. this frequently. And it's yes. just like, you're, yeah, you're on your like, you're, you're on your second trip around the earth, like, you know, yeah. moving one grain of sand at a time on broken glass. Yeah. And it's just like, this is not compatible with mercy. You know, no. like, this, is not, this is not merciful. This is not a merciful punishment. You know, and then some people who are just, they'll say like, what's the problem? And it's like, you are so hopelessly dogmatized. Like you have, you have had your rational faculties, like they've been evacuated from your fucking skull because you can't see the conflict between this and mercy. Like, you know, let alone like justice or love, like, like people have been dogmatized, like beyond repair. Let, let me, let me give you a little bit of a humanized, like I want, I feel that, I feel that pull, right? You're just like, this is disgusting. There's a level of empathy that, gets glossed over especially in the socialized context that a person a christian will be in right so i was raised in this effectively converted from catholicism to christian like evangelicalism baptism uh like nine eight or nine whatever it was and when i was going through all these conservative evangelical schools and going to church everyone in my little world was saved there was no one who wasn't in my bubble very 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 few who this applied to and like, 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 and this was back. I, I, I was born in the '80s, so uh, early '80s. So, like, being gay was stigmatized to the point of like they were just othered in the most real sense, right? And so, like, they deserved it. Everybody who did this deserved it. Like, I remember literally my eighth grade teacher telling me that humanists were literally Satanists. That's what they really were, right? So, and what got me out, what really made me say so the problem was I, be, I became very close, good friends with someone who was gay. And then they found a partner and then you started getting exposed. And then I started having other friends who were not Christian, who I witnessed to, who were like, are you crazy? I would have to believe all of my ancestors are in hell now. Like, this is insane to me. And like, there was no convincing them. And then like, like the problems of the resurrection argument came up of like, why would I believe even, even if I believe in God, why would I believe in your specific religion is my way? Like if I, you said the Hindus, they want to praise God, but they're going to hell anyway. Right on, on Craig's view. So, and we all, as evolved beings, again, barring from the naturalist worldview, they call it like the monkey sphere. You only have so many people in your life that you kind of can care about. Like, there's a limit to like what we can really kind of consider and, and empathize to. And you have to very much generalize it. And if you're socialized such that everybody in your life that's really important, your core group, is in the in group, all of these downsides don't necessarily matter, or the people who are in there deserve it. And that you get very much get that from the sort of conservative evangelical view that Craig is the paramount defender of, right? And so, yeah, we are appealing to their empathy in this way that it's it they and it's painful for them once you start down that path. They don't want to go down it, right? I avoided. I had like lingering doubts for years when like sort of objections got brought up, and I kind of put them under the the surface. And it took a very real relationship to kind of bring this out to a head, right? And, and you don't want to face that when you're in the view, right? And then eventually sort of it come, gets it's put out to the fold and then they become like one of us people. And that's just, who wants this? <laughs> yeah, so sort of that loss of empathy for the the other, the, the person in the out group in some sense, is that kind of what you're getting at? Right, you know, they, yeah. hey, you deserve it. They all deserve it, right? They're, they're yeah. evil heathens, they're, they're, they reject God. You knowingly reject God. Like you're doing the sin of infinite gravity, right? That's that's Craig's whole defense here. 
It's almost like, you know, you hear about people starving on the other side of the world and because we don't really see them or they're not close to us in our proximity, it's like, oh yeah, that's horrible. You know, and then it's kind of like very flippant, dismissive almost. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm guilty of that too. Um, and so the idea that, you know, hell, okay, that's, that's in the future. I don't know if you'd really describe it as in the future, like whatever, but it's like, there's not like an imminence to it, you know, that you witness these people. They're kind of out of sight, out of mind. And so it's very easy to just be like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. No, it's the same, like, I think Dustin Crummett said this to me one time, but, like, if you could just, like, their image of hell, like, if you could just show them, like, what was happening there for, like, 10 seconds. Yeah. First of all, I mean, like, they would never, first of all, they would have PTSD like no other human being has ever, like, suffered from. Right. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of similar to, like, factory farms and stuff. Like, people will kind of, like, you know, you can go to a fast food chain and, like, who cares? But, I mean, when you actually see... If you were actually to visit a slaughterhouse and like hear the animals kind of like screaming and like see they're obviously in pain and this is just like systematic animal cruelty on like an, an industrial scale, well then it's like okay, well this is wrong, you know. But yes. it is kind of like an out of sight, out of mind thing, and it's yeah, it's hard to empathize um, with <laughs> beings that you can't even see or don't know and and so on. But yeah, we have exactly. definite limits there. That's what I appreciate about David Bentley Hart. Um, when I first read the book that all shall be saved. You know, I kind of, I knew he was a universalist, and so I was interested in it um, in that sense. And I kind of thought that he would, you know, make the case for universalism, but kind of, you know, um, not necessarily beat around the bush, but, or, or pad things, you know, but just be kind of gentle, you know, hey, brothers, I think this is probably how it should be. But, you know, I get where you're coming from. Like, no, he's like, he's like, no, this is moral insanity. Like, you've all lost your minds. <laughs> Uh, and I really appreciated that about him. Like he didn't pull any punches, you know, like he just let him have it. And I'm like, yes. Um, yeah, no, he, he said there were so many moments when I was like, I'm still reading the book. I'm not finished with it yet, but, um, there've already been so many moments where I've just thought like, you know, I've said almost exactly the same thing. I mean, I didn't use as much like purple prose and I wasn't so douchey about it, but like I did, um, <laughs> because David Bentley Hart is, um, you know, Anyway, I mean, you, if you've read him, then you then you know what I'm talking about. But like, yes, he's a brilliant guy, and like, I really don't disagree with him about a lot of the things he's saying, and some of the things that he's saying explicitly factored into like my deconversion and stuff because I was dealing exclusively with Christians who believed that kind of thing. I just thought that's what real Christianity was, which is kind of a thing that he addresses in the book. He's like, that's why so many people believe this because they think this is what Christianity is, and in order to be a Christian, you have to believe this. So they try to rationalize it but it's moral insanity. It cannot be made sense of, you know, like this is, and you don't have to believe this to be a Christian. It's kind of, you know, one of the core messages of the book. I, I think this, so like, it's key, it's crucial to keep in mind, like wh where did this idea of hell come from? And it really was this thing of moral enforcement, right? Hey, you better follow. My God says this. Well, I don't believe in your God. Well, you're, you'll eventually will get it. It's eventually going to catch up to you and you'll, you'll suffer this eternally. Right. And it, it had to raise the stakes. And I, and I wish I really wish I could find it. I read some defense. It was like against annihilationism and universalism. And it was like some it was like a, a two bit apologetic or, like org. It was like karm.org or like cross examined. And I, I can't find the article, but it was just like, oh, it's, it's like the, the worst stuff. But they were like, well, you like you like this is the it's bad because you can't. You can't threaten me with what I expect to have happen anyway. So, like, if you're an annihilationist and you're like, well, you better accept Jesus or you're going to just cease to exist. And it's just like, well, if I tell my daughter she, if she doesn't 
you know, if you don't clean your room, you're still going to Disney World, right? Like, she already's expected to go to Disney World. There's no force there to try and, like, make you do this, which in and of itself is just an abhorrent moral principle. You're just being good to avoid a punishment. And if you need to have that over your head, right, um, it just, you're not being moral, really. That's, that's like a classic thought experiment about like two children, you know, one who does it because it's good and one who does it to receive the reward or to avoid punishment, which one of the children is moral, right? It's obviously the one who does it because it's good. Um, but it, it, it really is just this mechanism for like, it's a, it's a moral enforcement mechanism. Like you better, you better follow or this really bad thing's going to happen to you. And because if you just look at, at our lived experience, like, like having a happy life, having, um, you know, fulfilled lives, you'll find fulfilled atheists, fulfilled Mormons, fulfilled Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, pick them, right? You will find these happy, contented people. Like I've still, like I've been married for almost 20 years. I've got two kids. I've, I'm, everything's going great. I'm happy. But, you know, you, the, like the prosperity people are telling you, oh, you have to believe in Jesus for this to work. Like it doesn't make any sense. So like you have to have some kind of a, a stick to get it yeah i remember um i think it was a pagan intellectual named celsus who was talking about early christians and how disturbing they were where he was like they've invented this like system of terrifying incentives that have just it's like far exceeded anyone's like imagination like prior to this like like people <laughs> early christian like early christian i think it was the first few hundred years of christianity but um yeah there were a few people who commented on how disturbing their uh their incentive structure was one of the things, especially like we mentioned that, oh, Christians want to say, oh, it's just the, the hell, the fire's a metaphor. The eternal worm's a metaphor. It's not, it's not torture. It's this eternal solitude and mental torture of like that thing. And it's just like, Jesus told the parable about Lazarus in hell. And it was just like on fire, separated by a chasm, begging for a tie, like finger in water and put it on my tongue, please. Right. Like it doesn't like that's Jesus. And and I think the responses to say like, oh, this doesn't teach the Bible doesn't teach eternal conscious torture. Like dealing with that, I think the responses are not very good. Right. Which is another reason why I find it so hard to convert to Christianity, even the universal ones. Like there's so many problematic aspects to the Bible of it that you just kind of have to really interpret your way out of like the like the Old Testament, Old Testament genocides. Uh, it's it's just so implausible to me, but I mean mm -hmm. that's that's in there. Yeah, no, I mean if I were if eternal conscious torment and annihilationism kind of like swapped places with universalism, I mean I I don't know how things would have unfolded. You know, I might still be a Christian. Like if, if eternal conscious torment was as fringe as universalism is, then I, this might have you know there are so many things that stem from these like kind of internal problems with Christianity. Like there's a lot more than just hell. But I'm saying like trying to hold multiple beliefs all together and make them all hang together at once. Like eternal conscious torment is just this giant wrench that makes it impossible to hold a consistent worldview as like a theist. You know, like theism is logically incompatible with eternal conscious torment. There's no way around it. It's so blindingly obvious <laughs> to anyone who's not dogmatized and has some basic grasp of what words mean. Well, and John, what you said kind of reminded me of what because uh, you brought up Carm and um, I think uh, cross-examine, is that right? Yep. Uh, yeah. So Frank Turek, um, his like standard shtick is to always say like, well, 
if you don't want God now, you're not going to want him in the afterlife. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? No, you just say no. You're just like I'm. An, I'm a counterexample. Right. I'm a counterexample. Here's. I'll tell you right now. If even if it, as bad as I think Christianity is, if I find out, if I, you know, it's presented like God could. Uh, one of my favorite. My, my my argument against the resurrection is like empirically verifiable miracles. And if if that happened, right, and like you know my deceased grandmother came down and told me about heaven, and like I had this like extended experience, right. And it's just like, well, Christianity is the true religion. There's problems that you don't understand, but you know, this is the true religion. I'm converting. I'm going back, right? Reveal God to me, and in, in this, like, put me into the throne of judgment. I'm on my, I'm on my face, begging for forgiveness, right? Yeah. And I, I, it doesn't make sense to do anything else, in my opinion. Yeah. And so, like, to say you wouldn't want it, okay? That's just like before I even, even put the pokers to me. <laughs> So you know, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me five minutes of torture with the with the pokers and the and the heat and the whatever the worms, you know, and I'm already out. <laughs> exactly, and I don't know. In Frank Turk fashion, he has like this really cringy joke he always makes, like in every one of his presentations. Like he always, he compares it to like, like he picks out the women in the audience specifically, um, and is like, what if there was a guy like who just wouldn't leave you alone, you know, and it's like constantly, you know date me, date me, date me, you know, and like, you wouldn't want to be with that kind of person. So of course, God also is not going to pursue you uh, kind of a thing. And I'm like, there's so much wrong with that. You know, not only is it a horrible analogy, but like, as Emerson has been repeatedly pointing out, you know, like, we're not talking about some creepy stalker here. We're, we're talking about like the uh, uh, most um, uh, amazing being the, the, the thing that is the source like the literal source of all goodness to to which like um to be related to that being is like the ultimate fulfillment of your well-being and flourishing and like to to say that if that sort of thing was going to pursue you you just be like oh creepy get away from me you know like to, to treat it like some kind of weirdo yeah like the new testament states plainly like god is love it says it every which way so you can't possibly miss the point like you know and like catholics believe god is convertible with the good right and it's just like this is not some creepy guy who wants a relationship with you and won't take no for an answer we like can't take a hint like <laughs> being of perfect goodness like it's it's just yeah it's it's so insulting to god honestly like yes <laughs> i literally like once again and again i'm finding myself having a higher opinion of god than like most christians it, it doesn't make sense in the sense and also that god designed our natures right god designed what is what what makes us happy and what makes us have pain and want to avoid so god could have made us such that being in fire and eaten by worms triggers every one of our pleasure centers effectively like whatever you know you could come up with whatever good like eating a, a fulfilled meal right and that you know being around him triggered a, it was like torture like being on fire right and so like he determined what our responses would be to any of these given stimuli or states of affairs. And so to be given, hey, look, show me the show me the love, show me the hell, 30 seconds each. Let me pick. Right? Informed consent. And you know, we were designed such that we would do this. And I, I don't see why he wouldn't give us a nature, I think, that would intensely desire God anyway. Like that you would just always really do the good anyway. Um, like that's 
logically possible to me. So I, I just don't see where this comes from. Emerson, your point that you just said that you have like a, you tend to feel like you have a higher view of God than a lot of Christians. That reminds me of, um, have you read um, Schellenberg's book? I think it's, is it uh, Progressive Atheism? I think it's what it's called. Um, no, no, I haven't read it. Yeah. Uh, I think it's called Progressive Atheism. Uh, yes, it is. Okay. There it is on my shelf. It's called Progressive Atheism. And uh, Schellenberg kind of makes a similar point, like that this is actually a strong argument against God's existence is that atheists should have a very high view of God. Um, and that this is a being like that we should approve of, you know, that would be like you said, the greatest possible, ultimately loving, you know, and that's why it's incompatible with the world we see um, because it doesn't, the world we see doesn't match up with what we would expect from such a being. But it just reminded me of that, that um, his whole point was, yeah, we, we should have like the highest view of God we possibly can, but that actually gives us a strong argument or reasons to think that it doesn't exist. But I think it especially applies to thinking, you know, even if maybe we're kind of confused about certain things about this life and a being like that, we, we can, I think, certainly know that it's not compatible with um, never-ending suffering, for sure. That seems as good a place to uh, to end as any. Is, is there anything else you guys wanted to um, to touch on before we sign off? I feel like we've ranted pretty good, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think we had it. We had it good. Have fun with the editing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boys. See you in hell. <laughs> <laughs>